I haven't heard that song since I was a child. Um, it's, it's a beautiful one, though. Sometimes there's something beautiful in just singing simple words like, I love you, Lord, um, and hearing other believers sing it with you. Uh, if you would turn in your Bibles, we're going to be continuing our series in 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 10 this morning. And the question that you may be asking this morning is, how long, Paul, are we going to keep hearing about idle meat and freedom, and what are we supposed to do? And the answer is today, and then we'll be done with that part. But Paul finally kind of reaches the crescendo of his argument. Well, he's covered plenty of different stuff in chapters 8 and 9. Really, he's kind of coming down to the end where they're like, okay, Paul, like, what, what do you want us to do? Just tell me. Okay, do I eat the idle meat? Do I not eat the idle meat? You're giving me all these, qualifica all these qualifications, all these things. Just, just tell me what to do. And so Paul does that eventually, but he begins really by warning the church in Corinth. And he gives them three dangers of idolatry. Uh, a lot of the talk has been on Christ just Christian disagreement and our freedom and what we can and can't do and why and why not. And he really kind of plants here with giving them a warning. And he tells them about three dangers. And this is important for us still this morning because just like the church in Corinth didn't realize the danger of idolatry, they thought that what they were doing wasn't that big of a deal. It was almost insignificant. We still today don't think much about the dangers of idolatry. Well, I don't have any idols in my house. I don't know anybody that has any. So I, we think that we're good. But as we'll see this morning that we, like the church in Corinth, are in danger of participating with idols. So we're going to be reading from chapter 10. Um, we're going to just go through the, the whole chapter as is our, our habit. Um, so if you are able, if you would just stand with me for the, the reading of God's Word. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 died in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. For no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide you the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak to you as sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For whom all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But to what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. 
You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. But if one of the unbelievers invites you to his house and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. Do not mean your conscience, but his, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that which I give thanks? So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to do, please everyone in everything I do, I do not seek my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I pray that we would heed the warnings of Paul this morning. Lord, would you strengthen us, those of us who are tired or aching or distracted, would you give us strength? Would you push the distractions away so that we can hear your voice? Lord, would you comfort us? Would you open up our hearts? Would you open up our ears? Would you allow us to hear from you this morning? Would you show us what you would have us do? We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. And you can be seated. So the first danger we're going to look at is the danger of presumption. It's the danger of presumption. And what's happening here, as you kind of see in these first 13 verses, is that the Corinthian church is really um, getting prideful, which they've been that, but they're, they're presuming something about themselves. They're presuming a little bit that they are really um, immune to, from sin almost. So your second blank there at number A is that they are really presuming that they are invincible, but your blank is that we are not invincible. So we are not invincible, and we're not invincible from sin. But the Corinthians believe that they're kind of too good. They, they're not going to fall for this idol worship stuff because they think that they're, they're fine, they've got this. And why, why shouldn't they think this, right? They have the Holy Spirit living inside of them. And they've, you know, they can think that they've gone to church a long time, maybe they've served in ministry, maybe they're even a leader in the church. Or we can do the same thing, can't we? Like, oh, I've, I've read some good books, done some great studies, maybe even went to a theology conference, heard some great Bible teachers, taken really good sermon notes, even saved them in my Bible. And this is how the Corinthians view themselves. They think that they're really, really good. Over and over, Paul's had to kind of confront them about their spiritual pride, but they think, hey, compared to others, our sin isn't that big of a deal. Definitely not. You read the Old Testament. I mean, look at them. They're horrible. We're so much better than that. And we can have that same view, can't we, as we read some of these stories and go, you dummies, why are you worshiping a golden calf? Don't you know God just brought you out? I just read that two minutes ago. That can be our attitude. But so in order to confront this notion, Paul takes them on a history lesson is what he does. And right away in verse 1, he says, you know, I don't want you guys to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. I love how this starts. You know, don't want you guys to be unaware. This is kind of a backhanded remark. Okay, to the proud Corinthians, Paul is saying, I think you guys might have forgotten your Bible history. I don't think you guys know your Bible that well. Let me remind you of some key things. 
Let me point out some stuff to you. Maybe you forgot about the exodus and the wilderness. And he's saying, yeah, hey, these people literally saw, you know, baptized with Moses in the cloud. Don't you remember? They saw God every day as a cloud, day and night, following them around. Okay, I don't think any of us have seen that. Definitely not the same way they did. Saying, guys, Corinth, they saw way better miracles than you have. Okay, they saw the sea split right in front of them and stand up, and they walked through it. And they watched it collapse as their enemies were destroyed by it. They watched as manna fell from the sky every single day, and they got to eat that. Every day they were reminded by a miracle. They didn't have to go to the store to get anything. They saw God give them water out of a rock. They had Moses as their pastor, the guy whose face literally shined so bright because he was always talking with God that they had to put on a mask all the time because it would blind them. Okay, that was who they could go and ask their spiritual questions to. They got a way better pastor than y'all do. And Paul, he wants the Corinthians to see that the blessings you guys have received is not really that unique. Because the church in Corinth, we'll see this in a couple chapters later, they're real proud of themselves. They're real excited because God's working miracles in their midst. Okay, people are getting healed. People are prophesying. Visitors will come into the church and somebody will get up and say, hey, here's your sin. You need to repent of that. And they go, wow, how did you know that? There are miracles like that happening. They're speaking in tongues. All this stuff is going on and they are really proud. And Paul says, guys, that's not even the coolest stuff God's done. Israel had way more than that. They had all of that stuff. And then, verse 5, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. They were overthrown in the wilderness. Their experience of the miraculous did not keep them from sin. Their mountaintop experiences with God that may even be greater than stuff that we've experienced did not make them immune to the effects of sin. We are not invincible. And I'm sure that the people in Israel felt like they were super holy and super great. I'm sure they believed they had it all together. I mean, they could just look. Look at everything God had done in their life. Look at where He brought them from. But verse 6, Now these things took place as an examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. We need to learn from Israel's example. If those people who had seen and experienced so much who had walked with God in all of these powerful ways, still fell into the traps of idolatry over and over and over again, then how can we also believe the same about us? How can we believe we're too good to fall into those traps? How can we look at other sins and think, ah, I would never do that. I'm too great. And Paul, he confronts as he's really recounting kind of in 6 through 12, as he's going through all the different sins that Israel's had, he's also not just confronting Israel. He's really talking about Corinth's sins as well. Begins in 7, you know, don't be idolaters as some. People sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So first he's saying, well, hey, they were worshiping idols too. And I see you guys are sitting down and eating and drinking around idols. That doesn't look that different than what they were doing. Verse 8, don't engage in sexual immorality as some of them did. And he's recounting an example of that. Well, surely we've had a couple chapters where Paul's talked about the sexual immorality already amidst in their church. He said, well, now you guys two for two on your similarities. Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, nor grumble as some of them did. Well, the church in Corinth has been grumbling about Paul a lot. They've been grumbling and complaining. He's just going through all of their stuff. He's intentionally trying to draw parallels to see you guys are just like Israel. Not just that you've seen awesome stuff, but also that y'all are falling into the same sin traps that they have. 
And the key verse here in these, this first section is verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. The common statement we have today, right? Pride goes before a fall. That's especially true for believers. If we think that we stand, if we think that we're good, if we think we're invincible to sin because I've, been, I've hit my Bible study every day this week, I'm killing it. You are not invincible. And none of us are really as holy and righteous as we believe that we are. Some of us in this room really need to be reminded of that. If Paul himself can call himself the chief of sinners, if the apostle of apostles believes he's not that great, then surely we shouldn't think of ourselves too highly. If you believe that you've really conquered sin, you might not realize that you're already stuck in chains. We're not invincible to sin. And this realization should cause us to throw ourselves at the mercy of God. To realize that, man, we can't do this on our own. We desperately need help. The gospel is not that, hey, Jesus died on the cross for our sins and set us free and he gives us new life and now we will go to heaven with him and we can follow him freely now. That is part. That is the gospel, but it's not. And then we're good. Now you can do it all on your own. God's empowers you. Now the gospel is still, well, I still need Jesus today just like I needed him yesterday. He's set me on a different path. He's given me new life, but I still need his help. I still need the Holy Spirit every day to refresh me, to walk with us. The gospel still is that we need Jesus every single day. And he's willing to give it. So that's where some of us on this room, some of us on the other side of the room or the other side of the spectrum can believe not that we're too good to sin, but we can believe that we're trapped and stuck forever. So our first blank, you know, we are not invincible. The second one is, but sin is not inevitable. Sin is not inevitable. At least it does not have to be. So what do I mean by this? I, I mean that some of us here believe that we can never get out of our sins. Not, not that we think we can be perfect and, and escape everything, but we think that there's no hope. We think as we fall into that same trap again that here I, here I go, this is just who I am. Other people can get free of their sins, but not, not me. I, I'm too broken. I'm going to be trapped in this addiction forever. I just can't help it. So what's the point of fighting? What's the point of resisting? There's no hope. I mean, look, Israel was terrible, so I'm going to be just as bad. And so to those, Paul gives comfort in 13. No temptation has overcome you that's not common to man. That should comfort us. There's nothing that any of us face or have fallen or sinned in that we don't have plenty of company. Wouldn't necessarily call it good company, but we have company. And he continues, but God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Okay, this is a verse that gets twisted and then people say, hey, God will never give you anything that you can't handle. That is not what this verse says. It just says you won't have to face sin that God won't give you a chance to get out of. God will probably give you more than you can handle. But it continues. So you will not be able to be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide you a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So yes, we'll, we'll face temptation. It may be overwhelming, but there's always an escape hatch. And what is it? Well, the escape hatch is Jesus. Escape hatch is the gospel. The escape hatch isn't here, take this tip. Do, you know, I've, got, I've got five things you can do for you every time you're tempted. If you just do these things, you'll never sin again. Just trust me, buy my book. Okay, it's, it's not that. 
The escape from sin isn't to just try really hard. If you just grit your teeth, you can do it. You can do it all on your own. Just believe in yourself. No, the escape hatch is Jesus. It's literally to fall on our faces and cry out to God and admit, Lord, I, I'm going to do this if you don't get me out of here. I'm not good enough to resist this. I, I realize how broken I am. All I want to do is to grab on this sin that's in front of me right now. You have to grab me out of here. That's our escape hatch. And when we do that, he gives us the ability to get out. He allows us to endure it. This is, it's passive. This isn't something that we do. It's something that God does for us. And no one in this room is ever so far gone that we don't have the ability to cry out to God for help. None of us. And as long as you're willing to fall on your face and cry and beg him for grace, he always, always, always gives it. None of us are as holy as we think we are, but we're also not as lost and sinful as we might dream. Not when there's the grace of God at our fingertips. So it's not through our ability, it's through, through Christ. So that's kind of the, the first danger is the danger of, uh, of presumption. The second danger is the danger of freedom. It's the danger of freedom. And the key verse in this section is right away in 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Paul's trying to make it as clear as he can, the dangers of idolatry and sin. And all of these chapters, not, not all throughout the book, but 8, 9, and 10 have all been kind of around this question. What do we do with idol meat? Can I eat it? Can I not? And they all think they can eat it. They're like, hey, there's a couple people that think we can't. Straighten them out, Paul. Another way of what they're asking is, hey, Paul, how close can I get to these idols before I'm actually worshiping them? That's what I want to know. Where's the line is? I think the line's pretty far, Paul. Don't you agree? Paul's saying no, and so he's kind of finished and worked up to his argument to hear where he's just like, just run away from idols, guys. Just flee it. This isn't something to mess with. This isn't something to play with. This is something that is so serious that you need to run away from it. We can get the, the trap for them and the trap for us often is we can be so excited and enamored with the freedom that we have in Christ, right? I don't have to memorize all the laws in Leviticus. Thank you, Jesus. But... The danger there can think, I can just do whatever I want then, right? And Paul said, whoa, 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 you don't realize that y'all are playing with fire. And so he moves into this discussion on the Lord's Supper when he's talking about the cup of blessing and the bread that we break that's clearly an allusion um, to communion. And this is something that the early church would do every time that they gathered together once a week. And there's a lot kind of going on here, and we're going to talk more about communion next week, so I'm not going to dive too deep on it. I talked a little bit about it in one of the daily devotional things that I did. But one of the things to see here is when Paul talks about communion, he calls it participation. Verse 16, he says, is it not participation in the blood and the bread that we break? Is it not participation in the body of Christ? The word that's there for that is koinonia. Or fellowship. Participation is a good word too, but it's saying, hey, when you're taking this, you're experiencing fellowship with Jesus. Well, what's his point? Why would he mention that? Well, what he's trying to do, and your next blank here, under the danger of freedom, is that Sunday is not a vaccine against sin. Sunday is not a vaccine against sin. I've got my COVID vaccine. I'm pretty thankful. I'm trying not to worry about it now, hoping it works and we'll continue to all get it and then we can not wear masks anymore and be done with this. Okay, so that's nice. I've got that. Now I'm immune. It's, it's given me a lot of freedom. Well, what Paul is saying is, hey, so y'all are treating 
The communion, you're treating Sunday morning as if it makes you immune from sin the rest of the week. Now you can go and get as close to idols as you want because you're good. He's saying this fellowship with God, this isn't just something that's supposed to happen during communion. Yes, it happens in a unique way, but that fellowship's supposed to kind of define the rest of your week. It's supposed to define the rest of your life. The church in Corinth has got it in their heads, as long as I take that bread and that cup on Sunday, then I'm good. I can do what I want now. And we can fall into that same trap. Now, we, th we think we're smarter than the church in Corinth, so we we're not going to say it that way, right? But we'll, we'll think that way in our routines when we're not careful when we go on autopilot. Think, well, I read my Bible this morning, listened to, you know, listened to some good worship music in the car. I've been praying, so, so I'm good. Like, I, I've checked in with Jesus now, so now, now check that off the list. Now I can go do the, what I'm going to do the rest of the day. Now I think all my motives are good because I've checked in with Jesus, purified my heart, repented of my sins, and so now everything I do the rest of the day is just automatically going to honor God. Isn't that great? Now, we won't say that, but we think that, if we're honest. Now, those things are good. They're needed. Please don't stop doing that if you're doing that. But it, it's not a vaccine. It's not going to keep you falling prey from sin. Being here this morning, I hope all of us leave being refreshed and having communed with God and hearing His Word. But there's still going to be things that will trip you up. Like if somebody doesn't know how the four-way stop works, that can get you very quickly. But what they're, they're thinking, what we can think is that suddenly, unfortunately, everything becomes holy and I can eat idol meat however I want because I'm worshiping God. That's the main thing I'm worshiping. I know this isn't real worship, but Paul warns them, 21, you cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. You can't do both. And Paul says, hey, eating that idol meat, that's not, that's not that big of a deal. Yeah, it's not really a big deal because... Idols aren't real, it's just wood and stone. But you know what's actually behind that is demons. Okay, that should make us pause. What? I don't, don't think about demons. So we're done with the demons, right? Jesus kind of cast most of them out. Maybe there's some demons running around in some other country that's not ours. So I, I, I'm good. I don't want to think about demons anymore. What Paul is saying is, hey, you guys do not realize that what you are doing is actually participating. You are having fellowship with demons. Hey, that should give us pause. That should make us think. should make us question, hey, is there something I'm doing that could be having fellowship with demons? Because I don't think I want to do that. I don't think I want to be in the room with a demon, let alone hanging out or headed the same direction. So your next blank here under the danger of freedom is that we can worship idols without realizing it. We can worship idols without realizing it. In fact, that's the main way that we tend to do it. And it's not just that we're worshiping idols without realizing it. Also, what Paul is saying, maybe I'm just not bold enough to put it in your blank, is really you're participating with demons without realizing it often. And that includes me. So that should make us be a little scared. Now, the Corinthians, what's going on here is they're thinking, hey, man, like, I'm just, I'm just eating some food. Like, who cares what was going on over there? Like, I'm free in Christ. And what Paul is saying, you don't realize that what you are doing is actually affecting you. There is a, a deep, deeper things at work. It might just be in your heart. It might just be in the unseen spiritual realm. But stuff is happening when you do this that you don't even realize. So how do we do this? Right, well, I can think of a couple things that affect us without realizing it at all. The list is long. But we can go on a, a couple stuff here. Well, social media does this, doesn't it? Christian freedom, we can use it. it, it it's, not, it's not evil. It's not sinful. Nothing in the Bible that says we shouldn't. 
but it does shape our hearts. There's plenty of studies that go out that show you the, the more you use social media, it leads to an increase in depression and narcissism. Okay, no one uses it because they think, you know what, I'd really love to feel more full of myself and get depressed, so let me go look at Facebook today. Okay, that's not what any of us do, but some of us will still do it. And yet we don't realize how it subtly works, how it suddenly pulls at us, how it shapes our hearts. And regular media does this too, right? Whatever news station you like, or right or left or middle, or you, the one you think isn't on anywhere on those, all of them, almost, I'll say 99% of them, subtly and unsubtly tell you how evil your enemies are and how they are out to destroy everything that you love and care about. And so what does that do as you suddenly consume that over and over? Well, that teaches you not to love your enemies as Jesus says, but to fear your enemies, to fight your enemies, to destroy your enemies, because they don't deserve love. They're the worst ever. Don't you see how terrible they are? Okay, if you consume that all the time, how do you think that is going to shape you? Well, it's going to subtly make us listen to that more than the words of Jesus telling us to love our enemies. Cell phones addict us, right? Every ping, every notification, everything that comes up, it teaches us to love it. Teaches us to feel, oh, did I feel it vibrate? Let me check again. Teaches us to desire it. We don't realize all these things are idols. Children's sports do this, right? The pressure to be on every team everywhere, to travel, to sacrifice all the time and energy and Sundays and everything to the God of sport and winning. We don't think of it that way, right? Because it's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with children's sports. However, when we're not careful, we have Christian freedom to do it, but as we don't realize, we can quickly be participating with demons. Again, I'm not saying all those things are demonic. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that when we don't pay attention, we can very easily find ourselves worshiping idols. And most of the idols we are worshiping are not things that we think of. Probably even the things that come to your mind this morning are probably not the biggest idols in your life. It's probably the things that we don't want to think about, that we would never think, well, that can't be it. That's just a wonderful good thing. What are you talking about? But we need to recognize this because most of our idols, again, they're not obvious. Most of them are things that we celebrate that are good things. Some of them are even awesome things, and that can be what makes them dangerous. So yes, I mean, use our Christian freedom, right? Read the news, do sports, have a cell phone, be on social media, it's okay. But beware, be on guard. As Paul tells us, flee, flee from idolatry. So the question I, I was wrestling with as I'm working through this passage, man, am I really fleeing from idolatry or am I getting as close as I can without worrying about it? That's something we all have to wrestle with. Now the third danger kind of in 23 to the end, is the danger of selfishness. It's the danger of selfishness. And there's two extremes here with selfishness that can really pull us off track. There's different places as we face this danger that we are tempted to go. And the first one is really kind of the danger of the person who's more legalistic. And this person, or some, desire their own holiness over loving others. Some desire their own holiness over loving others. And this is the person who is focused on obeying the rules, okay? I like rules. Rules are good. I don't like gray, okay? I want you to just tell me. Tell me what you expect me to do, and then I'll tell you if I'm going to do it or not. But don't just leave it open to interpretation. Then I'm going to spend way too much time thinking about it, drawing diagrams, trying to figure it out. Just give me rules. I like rules. 
So this is that person in 23 saying, you know, all things are lawful. Like all things are lawful. So I, I'm following the law, Paul. I, I'm doing what I am supposed to do. And this person wants to know that they are following the Bible to a T. Okay, if God says flee from idolatry, perfect. If anything ever could be an idol, I'm going to stop it all. I'll abstain from everything. This is what the monks did, okay, kind of in the Middle Ages. They just ran off into the desert. And some said, well, that's not even good enough. There's some who just sat up on a pole and said, I'm just going to sit up on this pole so no one can bother me too because I might get tempted to worship idols if I get too deep into relationships or something. So that's what I'm going to do. And that's, some of us can do that. Some of us, that is not us. We'll hit you in a minute. But some of us that's there, and in 25, what Paul says to them is, okay, this person, you don't need to be seeking your own good. You need to seek the good of your neighbor, 24. 25, eat whatever's sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So this is pretty radical for Paul to say this. Okay, the meat market, it's their Walmart, it's their grocery store. So there's meat that's sold here. This is where they go and pick up, you know, their steaks or their whatever. And what would happen is you'd often go there and some stuff would be labeled and say this stuff was sacrificed to idols. Some stuff would have a little sticker, hey, this is kosher, no idols stuff here. A lot of it just wouldn't have anything. So you're just, you're, you're rolling the dice on it. So good Jews, good legalists trying to follow the law, they, they got to go and they, let me see the label. Hey, where'd this meat come from? Oh, you're sure it didn't get a temple? Well, who'd you buy it from? Which spot? So they've got to go through this rigged thing just to make sure before they buy the meat that it's not sacrificed to idols. they got to do the investigation, interrogate the store owner, maybe chase some other stuff before they get it. Well, Paul is telling them, hey, stop it. Just, just knock that off. You don't need to be legalistic about it. Just eat it. If you don't know, then it's fine. Okay, that's a little different. He goes on in 27, he says, if an unbeliever invites you to a dinner and you decide you're going to go, just eat whatever is before you. Again, without raising an issue. So he's saying, don't do the same thing. Just be free. Don't be a legalist. Don't start interrogating them. Hey, where'd you buy this from again? Oh, sorry, I, I, I can't do that. Yeah, no, no. And now why would he give this instruction? Because this is a little different. But it's because the legalist or some people here are really only concerned about themselves, concerned about their own holiness, and they're not concerned about what's helpful in 32. They're not concerned about what builds up. They're not really concerned about their neighbor. They're only concerned about themselves. That's it. They're not worried about, hey, how am I a witness for the gospel and a witness for Jesus? They're not worried about, hey, am I, am I loving my neighbor? Hey, they, they made this meal and put a lot of care and effort into it. How is it going to feel if I ask this question? No, no, no. They're just focused purely on themselves and their own holiness. And the irony of that is their over-selfish focus on holiness makes it not holy anymore because they're not loving their neighbor. And this is one of the traps of legalism. It focuses on, keeps us focused on ourselves to make sure I'm obeying all the rules and I'm being the best and I'm being awesome and I don't really care how that affects anybody around me because I'm good and that's the most important thing. And he's challenging this person to, to those of us who are here to knock it off. That there, there are instances where you need to think more, and many of them, you need to think more about how does me doing this affect my neighbor, how does this affect others, not just how does it affect me. So a small example of myself in, in wrestling with is in college, I was getting really serious about fasting. Um, so I was trying, I was just convicted and trying to make it a more regular spiritual discipline. So I made it Tuesday. Tuesday is going to be my fasting day for a while. So 
Every Tuesday, I just wouldn't eat that, that whole day and spend extra time praying and doing that. So one Tuesday came, doing my fasting thing, just killing it, doing great, and I get a call. And it's an old friend from Nebraska that I haven't seen in a number of years since I'm all the way out in Virginia. And he just happened to be driving through and was in town that day. And so he called me and said, hey, man, I really want to take you out to dinner tonight. And I'll pay for it. I just, I just miss you. I haven't seen you in a while. Okay, in that moment, I had a choice of what am I going to do? And, you know, a little ashamed to say, I wrestled with that, okay, because I, I like rules. I thought, well, if I, I'm fasting. So, like, I'm going to lose all my spiritual juice that I've gained today for the week, right? And, well, if I do this, then what's going to happen the next time, the next Tuesday? Well, I'm probably not going to want to fast as much because now I've stopped. Like, once I stop something, I'm probably not going to start. So I'm going through all this stuff in my head of what do I do? Or, you know, well, maybe I can compromise here, right? I'll, I'll just tell them, hey, like, I'm sorry. Like, I'm fasting because I'm really spiritual and good now. Um, but I'd love to hang out with you. So, like, I'll just watch you eat or we can go do something else. And that. So, I'm re you know, I'm sitting there wrestling with all of that. And in that, even in that, my compromise that I thought was really good, God just rebuked me and realized, you know, I'm prioritizing my own holiness my own spirituality over somebody else's. And so instead of being concerned about, hey, wow, this person wants to give and bless me, how good would that be for them to do that and their step in doing that? I was just concerned about me. So I went out to dinner, okay, and I ate a lot because I was really hungry because I've been fasting all day. <laughs> and I enjoyed my time, and I didn't tell them that, hey, I was fasting today. So I, I really was blessing you by being willing to sacrifice that. I also realized, okay, I can't do that. Okay, why? Because there are times that we need to put away our legalism and just embrace love in our neighbors. This is right last week we talked about it. there's times we have to give up our rights because we love our neighbors. There's also time we have to give up our extra rules. Not that we sin. That's not what Paul is saying, but there are times we have to give that stuff up. But then Paul goes the other direction as well. Then it may be all of you. Some of you may be over here. Some of you aren't legalists. Some of you are all about freedom and liberty, Right? Some love not having rules. Just don't give me rules and I can do whatever I want. So the danger here is in this blank is some desire their own freedom over loving others. Some can desire their own freedom over loving others. And this is the same trap. It's just in the other direction. In both cases, we care more about ourselves and being self-centered than we care about centering God and loving others in everything we do. Another example here is that Paul gives on the other side of being in someone's home in 28. But if someone says to you, hey, this has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it for the sake of one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. And I don't mean your conscience, I mean their conscience. And he asks this kind of rhetorical question of, yes, I'm telling you that your freedom should be determined by what somebody else thinks and believes. This is a hard verse. So what Paul is saying is he's talking to the person who's free. The person believes, I can eat idle meat all that I want. This is fine. This person who doesn't think that it's a sin at all. But this other person who's in the house that they're eating in, assuming all, I'm assuming it's an unbeliever because that's who it was in 27. It sounds like the same scenario. I could be wrong. You could disagree with me. But I, th I think it's also an unbeliever. And what he's saying, if this unbeliever invites you and says, oh, I forgot. Like this, this meat was sacrificed to an idol. Like you're a Christian, so you probably don't want it. What Paul is saying is that then what you should do is give up your freedom and say, yeah, I, you're right, I am a Christian, I'm okay. Thank you, thank you for telling me. Saying don't correct them, don't give them some books and articles or show them how wrong they are in their assumption. So it's just to give up your liberty, give up your freedom for someone else. 
And ha- this is something Paul's just hammered over and over and over again. I, I'm happy to be preaching a different chapter next week because Paul's just beaten me over the head with how giving up our freedom is supposed to be a normal part of the Christian life. And at 33, or 33, yeah, he says, just as I try to do, please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. I was not saying that he's people pleaser and just do whatever people want. It's 32 saying, you know, don't give offense to Jew or Greeks or to the church. He's just saying, look, anything I can do to make it easier for people to love Jesus, that is what I'm going to do by far. Why? That they may be saved. And Paul, again, is saying we need to care more about others, especially unbelievers. And if they are going to come to faith in Jesus, then we care about our own freedoms. There are some who, who love their freedom in Christ so much it can dominate their relationships. It can even affect their relationships with others. Try and find some modern, you know, I'm trying to think of some modern day examples of this. Okay, if I'm over at a, a neighbor's house, somebody who's not a believer, and they say, oh, hey, you know, do you, do you want a beer? Oh, you know, I forgot. Yeah, you're a pastor, so you probably don't want to drink. Okay, in that moment, what should I do? Okay, the right response wouldn't be to, well, I have my Bible here, so actually let me, I've been preaching some sermons on this. Let me tell you why I have the freedom to drink a beer, actually. This would be good. Let me walk you through this. Now, the right response, Paul would say, is just to say, yes, I, I'm a Christian, I'm a pastor. Thanks for offering, but I'm okay. I, I won't have that then. Why? Well, because the important thing isn't these other stuff. The important thing is we should care more about leading somebody to Jesus than we care about my freedom to, to drink or to do whatever. Uh, another example I can think of this is I, you know, I, I love movies. I've told you I can kind of struggle with this because I can be a bit of a movie snob. Um, and I know many believers are, are different here with me, right? And this is good, Christian freedom. We can struggle with films. There's some who think, you know, hey, Christians, you shouldn't watch movies at all because they're all bad. It's participating with demons, which I can understand. Some would say, well, no, Christians shouldn't watch R-rated movies. You really shouldn't watch movies with this. You fill in your list of whatever you think that is. Okay, so if I'm having a conversation and somebody says that, what should my response be? Okay, should I just rail and tell you, actually, well, here, I think Christian movies are terrible, and here's why they're the worst ever, and you should actually hate them. Should I just talk about some foreign films that I watched this week and why they're actually so good, blah, 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 blah? Or is it better to just be quiet about my freedom, my opinion, and think about somebody else instead? Instead of centering myself, should I think, well, how would, me say, how would that actually affect them? Would that actually strengthen their faith? Or would that actually maybe make their faith weaker? Maybe then they'd start to wonder. You know, that's, this is hard, but this is what Paul says. That, that we have to be willing to surrender and not desire our own freedom over loving others. That the central part of this is just in 24, let no one seek their own good, but the good of his neighbor. That should be our driving Force. And the conclusion that Paul has kind of in this whole discussion of Christian freedom or these last chapters is 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Don't offend the Jews or the Greeks or the church of God. Another way to say this, whatever you do, honor Jesus by honoring your neighbor. Honor Jesus by loving your neighbors, by loving others, that our desire should be to love others, not just ourselves. Again, 24, don't seek our own good, but the good of our neighbor. So whatever we do, using our freedom, not using our freedom, giving it up, surrendering it, 
we need to make sure in all of these discussions that we are putting our neighbors and our brothers and sisters and our unbelievers first in this. That they need to be what we are thinking about. So those are the, the, the three dangers that we have of idolatry. We have the danger of presumption, the danger of freedom, and then the danger of our selfishness. But so what's the, the solution? Well, we, we've hit it a little bit on all of this. Really, the solution is the gospel, and the solution is Jesus. Well, how can we avoid that? It's not even necessarily just 14. Well, I'm going to try my hardest to run and to flee from idols, and I can do it. I'm going to put up some more guardrails. I'm going to get legalistic. I'm going to add some more rules so that I can avoid this. Now, the gospel is the solution. We have to run to Jesus. We have to throw ourselves at his feet every single day and beg for his grace and his mercy. For those who are unbelievers, we have to do that because you need Jesus to save you. For those of us who are believers, we need to do that because we still need Jesus to help us again today. And what the gospel does is it helps recenter us as well because we realize, wow, the world doesn't revolve around me, it revolves around Jesus. If the world revolves around Jesus, then that should affect my relationships. That should affect how I answer all of these questions. And the gospel also reminds us that, hey, I don't escape these dangers by just being a great person and working really hard and reading my Bible extra, those, though those are good things. The way we avoid these dangers is just by running and throwing ourselves at the feet of Jesus and asking him to deliver us. So again, we've looked at these three dangers, the danger of presumption, compromise, and the danger of selfishness. And all of these lead us into the trap of worshiping idols and maybe even participating with demons where we don't know it. So our challenge for us is that we need to flee idols, church family. We need to flee it and run from it. And every one of us has an idol that we're tempted to worship, at least one. Really, If we're honest, we probably have at least two idols that we're worshiping. There's one that we know about and we, and we you know, struggle with and are kind of fighting on. And then there's another idol that we don't even realize that we're worshiping. So maybe we just need to be brave enough to ask Jesus to reveal that to us. Say, Jesus, show me where I'm, where I'm falling short. Show, us, show me where I'm worshiping something that's not you. And then what do we do? Well, we need to run to Jesus. Ask him to set us free to set us free from idolatry and to help us stay worshiping him and not get off track chasing all these other things. Because that's what he does, is he gives grace after grace after grace and he sets his people free no matter how often we go back to worshiping that thing that we told him the last time, this is the last time, Jesus, I promise I won't do it again. And yet he gives even more grace. I'm gonna close this in prayer, invite our worship team to come up and to lead us one more song, singing to this gracious Jesus. Lord, I just ask that you would give us strength, Lord. Um, the passages like today are, are difficult. They're hard to understand. They're harder to preach. Uh, Lord, I just ask that you would just help us. Would you reveal the idols in our lives that we're worshiping? Would you reveal the stuff in my life that I tend to worship and not realize how dangerous it is and how much it is leading me away from being like you? Lord, deliver us from our presumption, from our pride. Deliver us from our overemphasis on freedom. Deliver us from everything that we are chasing other than you. Deliver us from our selfishness. Lord, would you help us to center ourselves on the gospel? 
Would we care more about you and being like your son and loving our neighbors and leading them to faith in you than we care about anything else? Lord, give us the strength to run from idols because we need your help. All of us will fall into temptation unless you aid us. And we desperately need you. I just pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing towards our awesome God? Our our God is an awesome God, though. And one of the, the things I love from this benediction from Hebrews is it reminds us that God can equip us with everything we need to do His will. There may be days, there may be this morning, you feel like you you can't do it or you're unequipped. But just know that's why God is here, because he equips you so that you can do it. Our benediction. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be all glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you, church family. Have a great week.